Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. And we will start with verse 5 today. Some of you may have been wondering, when are we ever going to get out of the first four verses? Here we are. Let's read, starting at verse 5 and going through verse 15. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts, or a bag for your journey, or even two coats or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worthy of his support. And whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Now after examining what we know from Scripture, what we can surmise from Scripture, and what church tradition tells us about the apostles, we finally turn to Jesus sending them out for the first time as his ambassadors, his missionaries to the Jewish people who were described in chapter 9, verse 36, as distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw the lostness of the multitude, and he said to his disciples in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And then in verse 38, he called the disciples to pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And then we, as we come to chapter 10, he made them the answer to their own prayer. So in verse 1 of chapter 10, he summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And after listing who they were, we come now to verse 5, and we're told these 12 Jesus sent out. So as a part of their training and molding them into what they needed to learn to become the men who would change the world, he sent them out on a short-term missionary trip to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to heal the sick. Now, Jesus' purpose for this first apostolic mission was twofold. First, it was for the sake of the lost, to give them an opportunity to hear and accept the gospel. And second, it was for the benefit of the twelve themselves, to give them training in the enterprise of winning souls. Jesus was instructing these people on how to reproduce disciples. And while the instruction that he gives them is for a short-term mission, as you go through the chapter you find that he gives them information that will be good for them for the entirety of their lifetime of ministry. Uh, some of it's very defined and confined, and some of it is very broad and almost telescopic. Uh, it starts with a very limited perspective and then begins to unfold and unfold and unfold until you finally come to the end of the chapter and you realize just how broad and expansive the instruction was. Uh, so we find here principles meant for them on their first short-term mission, and yet they can be extrapolated 
and drawn out to apply to all of us who go out in the name of Jesus Christ to reach others for him. Now this chapter is divided into three parts. The first section is the part we read, verses 5 to 15. And it ends in verse 15 with the statement, Truly I say to you. And that section talks about the task of the missionary, the basic task of ministry. The second section encompasses verses 16 to 23. And again, it ends with the words, truly, I say to you. Notice that. You, know, you might even highlight that or underline that. Verse 15, truly, I say to you. The next section ends verse 23, truly, I say to you. That section talks about the reaction to the one who's been sent, the reaction to ministry. The third section includes verses 24 to 42, and it ends in verse 42, once again, with the words, truly, I say to you. That section talks about the cost of the, uh, to the one being sent, the cost of the ministry. So we're going to learn about the task, the reaction, and the cost of being a disciple sent out in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to start looking at the task of the ministry in verses 5 to 15 today. We will not finish it, but as my friend Richard regularly reminds me, we don't have any deadlines. The only deadline we face is either our own death or the Lord's return. Uh, until then, we just keep on marching through the text. Uh, so what we find in verses 5 to 15, as we look at the task of the ministry, we see eight effective principles for missionary work. And when I say missionary work, don't misunderstand me to mean that these only apply to those who we think of as vocational missionaries, uh, who go out to some other place to evangelize souls and plant churches. We are all the Lord's missionaries. Uh, if you are a true follower of Jesus Christ, you are one of his missionaries, and you've been commanded to go into all the world and make disciples. So if you're going to go out representing the Lord and do his work, then it's essential for you to understand these principles. Uh, and there are eight of them, eight principles for effective ministry. They are number one, and we'll be going, working our way through this, so if you don't get them all now, don't worry about it. But number one, a divine commission. Number two, a central objective. Number three, a clear message. Number four, confirming credentials. Number five, confident faith. Number six, settled contentment. Number seven, concentration on those who are receptive. And number eight, a rejection of those who are contemptuous. So let's begin with a divine commission. The first part of verse five says, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. There's the commission. Notice that they didn't volunteer, although they're willing to go. Uh, they were sovereignly called, commissioned, and sent out by Jesus. He did not superimpose his will over their will, but they were called. They were commissioned just like the prophet Jeremiah, of whom the Lord said in Jeremiah 1.5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So they were sovereignly called by God. They were given a divine commission. They're under orders. One of the most important things to know in ministry is to recognize that God has sent you. So you want to be sure that you're sent before you go. 
In terms of the normal Christian who's not going into vocational Christian service, it's important to understand that you have a divine commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Every believer has that commission. But there are also those to whom the Lord has given a divine commission to serve him as pastors, missionaries, and church planners. And before they go, they must know that God has, sent his, has set his hand on them and commissioned them to go as his representatives to serve in those capacities. In Mark's gospel, in the parallel passage in chapter 6, verse 7, we're told that the disciples were sent out in pairs, uh, two by two. One reason for doing such was that they would have a companion during times of loneliness. For another, they would be strength to one another in times of temptation. <clears throat> they would be encouragement in times of despondency and persecution. And they would could relieve each other in the matter of preaching and healing, which would be going on all the time. And finally, they all knew from Deuteronomy 19.15 that the testimony of anyone was to be confirmed by two or three witnesses. So the Lord sends them out two by two. It only lasted a few weeks, uh, but they were still the ambassadors of Christ officially sent. This was very significant because this is the first time that the kingdom truth was proclaimed by anyone other than John the Baptist or Jesus. Uh, they are like the Apostle Paul who says in 1 Corinthians 9, 17, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. In their case, their commissioning was direct. Uh, the Lord walked up to them and says, you, follow me. Uh, that would have been very clear, obviously. Uh, they didn't have to pray and ask the Lord to show them a sign. Uh, I mean, he just grabbed them and took them. With us, it's a little more indirect, but it can still be known. I've been asked many times through the years by young men who aspire to the office of an elder, uh, how did you know that you were called to the ministry? And my answer consists of three things. Uh, first, a strong desire. First uh, Timothy 3.1 says, if any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. Uh, I think the implication of that is that God will put in the hearts of those men he has called a desire to serve him in that way. And that desire will be evident by their love and obedience to God's word. Uh, second, there's the confirmation of the church. Through the years, I've heard men say, I believe God has called me to preach. And everyone else around them says, we've heard you, you're not called to preach. Uh, I know of a couple of cases the elders have discussed in years gone by in which that was the case. A guy may have a lot of Bible knowledge and he may be a nice guy, but that doesn't mean that God has called him to preach. He must have the ability to communicate its truths in a way that are clear and understandable and applicable by others. Uh, he doesn't have to be the most charismatic speaker that you've ever heard, but he does have to be able to teach it clearly and effectively. And his life must reflect that he meets the qualifications listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So you have to have the confirmation of the church. That's what Paul meant when he said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.14, do not neglect the spiritual gift within you which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the council of elders. Uh, so there must be confirmation by the leadership of the church. And finally, the ministry is made possible by opportunity. In 1 
Corinthians 16, 9, Paul says, A wide door for effective service has opened to me. When a person has a strong desire to minister and the encouragement of the godly leaders and mature believers in the church, God will open a clear door of service. But it will always be in his timing, not the timing of the man who has the desire. Any man who pleads incessantly for opportunities to preach is trying to force the issue. Uh, if the Lord wants to use a man, he will open those doors. So you're looking for a God-given desire for confirmation and affirmation and for open doors of ministry. The disciples were called in a very direct, very immediate, visible, external way. Today, pastors are called internally by the Spirit, and it usually takes some time for that call to be evident to others. Uh, but nonetheless, they are called and commissioned. Now notice that it says he not only sent them, but he instructed them. The Greek word that's used here is very interesting. Most modern translations have translated it as instructing. But it's the old King James Version that translates it the most correctly. The word means to command, to give orders. In our modern English, someone else can give someone can give someone else instructions, but often those aren't thought of as commands. Uh, this word clearly means that he was commanding them. If you trace this word through its various usage in the Greek language, you find that it was primarily a military term. Uh, it was used of a military commander giving orders to their subordinates, an order that required unhesitating and unqualified obedience. But second, the word was also used in legal matters. In uh, some of the ancient papyri, this word was used of a court summons, commanding someone to appear in court. Uh, in other words, he's bound by a legal authority to obey and respond and go to court. Uh, we also find this word is used of an ethical concept. For example, when Aristotle taught morals or ethics to his students, the standards he taught were considered to be binding on his students on the basis of the learner's integrity. When you learn what is ethically right, you were bound to obey that if you have any true character. The word was also used to refer to certain accepted standards or techniques in language writing and oratory. Uh, for example, it's used of the rules of grammar, which define how something is to be written. Uh, and fifth, it was a medical term used of a doctor's prescription or instructions to someone who was sick. They were being told exactly what they had to do in order to get well. So then, to sum it up, in every dimension of its use, this word included the idea of binding a person to make the proper response to a command or instruction. The soldier was bound to obey the orders of his commander. A person was in, involved in a legal matter was bound by the court's orders. A person of integrity is bound to obey moral principles. A writer or public speaker was bound by the standards of the structure of language. And a patient was bound to follow his doctor's orders. So and as you trace this use of this word in the New Testament, you find it's used 31 times and it repeatedly is used as the standard Christian term for a command or strict instruction. In Luke 5.14, it says that Jesus ordered a leper to tell no one who healed him. In Luke 8.29, it says Jesus commanded 
an unclean spirit to come out of a man. It's used in Acts 4.18 of the Sanhedrin commanding Peter and John not to preach in Jesus' name. Uh, it's used in Acts 15.5 of the Pharisees demanding that the apostles direct the new believers to obey the Mosaic law and be circumcised. So it's used in many places, and it's a word that means that the hearer is commanded and bound to respond. Uh, so what are the implications for the disciples and also for us when we understand that the Lord is sending us out into his harvest? Well, I so appreciated this quote from John MacArthur in his commentary on Matthew. Here's what he writes. When one realizes his calling is of the Lord, he has no choice but to respond just as a soldier responds to a superior officer or a person in the courtroom responds to the judge. God sets the standards and gives the orders. Our responsibility is to obey. God does not require creativity or innovation in his ministers, but he does require obedience and faithfulness. The minister is not a chef, but a waiter. He's not called to prepare the meal because God has already done that, but to serve it just as he has received it, end quote. So we are servants under divine commission, and that's binding on us. We are bound to fulfill that commission before God. All of us, I think, in some sense have been commissioned, some more officially commissioned as pastors, missionaries, and evangelists, but all of us are bound to obey Christ's call to go and represent him in this world. And I think it's good that our Lord commands us with binding instructions. Because, frankly, there are so many days we'd like to get out. Uh, I know there have been many times in the 40 years that I've been an elder in this church that I wanted to bail out and let others deal with all the problems. Uh, but I know that God has called me to this office, and he's ordered me to carry out his binding instructions. So I just keep going on, obeying what I've been told to do, which is to shepherd the church of God. So the effective servant of the Lord, regardless as to whether he was one of the 12 disciples or one of us today, realizes he's under divine orders. He doesn't have any options. He's committed to obedience. He's committed to follow the principles of the word of God as commanded. That's why when we all go into the world to make disciples we, and we baptize them and teach them and, uh, to observe all that Jesus has commanded us to do, because that's the whole issue. The Lord wants obedience. Well, we come to the second principle. Effective missionary is not only marked by a divine commission, but he's also marked by a central objective. A central objective. Look at the end of verse 5 and then verse 6. He says, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. If you're going to be effective in serving God, there has to be a very clear focus, a very central focus. A ministry that is not focused on certain priority objectives is a ministry doomed to mediocrity. Uh, God gives different objectives to different people, and he often changes objectives from time to time and situation to situation, just as he did with the apostles. But he never asks a person to do everything that's in sight. Uh, he's a loving and reasonable God, and when we find ourselves frustrated and overworked, it may be that we're trying to do more than he's called us to do. 
or we may be seeking to do it in our own power. Uh, the Great Commission was Jesus' broad general order to proclaim the gospel to the whole world. But in carrying out that commission, the apostles were given specific gifts and specific ministries. And yet at this particular time in Christ's plan for proclaiming the gospel and preparing the apostles, his objective was especially narrow and limited. The two phrases that you see there, in the way of and any city of, are what are called possessive genitives in the Greek, which means they don't go down a road belonging to the Gentiles. Don't go to a city belonging to the Samaritans. So don't go near the Gentiles or the Samaritans. In other words, they're not at this time to proclaim the kingdom message of salvation to non-Jewish people. You say, well, what has Jesus got against them? I mean, is the gospel message limited to the Jewish gospel? Well, it was at this point. And then in verse 6, he says, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, please understand that this is not a permanent command. This is a very dispensational statement, a very narrow statement that's limited to this time and place in the plan of God. I'll talk about that in a moment, but I want you to see what I want you to see is that it illustrates how God gives people very clear objectives, very central focus, very limited missions. One Bible scholar once said that some people's perception of ministry is so vast that their ministry winds up being like a birdbath, a mile long and an inch deep. Uh, but the focus that our Lord gives here is on the narrowness of ministry. But you might wonder, does this mean that God doesn't care for the Gentiles? Of course not. He cares for the Gentiles greatly. Just in case you might wonder about that, look back at Matthew 8, 5 sometime, and you'll find that it says when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. That man was a Gentile. He was a Roman soldier who commanded a hundred men. And Jesus responded to that man. I believe He brought not only healing, but I believe he brought salvation to that household. And in that passage, Jesus makes a great statement in verse 11. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That means east and west of Israel. Many Gentiles will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But, verse 12, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Don't be confused here. Jesus has already made it abundantly clear he will reach the Gentiles. In fact, in the Old Testament, all you need to do is read Isaiah, and you will find that in chapter 49 and several places in chapter, through in the 50s there, that he says Jerusalem will carry the message to the nations. Uh, he loved the Gentiles. The Lord has always had the Gentiles in his plan. You say, well, what about the Samaritans? Does he have something against the Samaritans? No, but the Jews hated them. Uh, they absolutely despised them. It was one thing to be a Gentile. But to be a Samaritan was to be a corrupt half-breed of Jew and Gentile, and that was a crime unforgivable in the minds of many Jews. In fact, about 20 years before the time of Christ, the Samaritans had contributed greatly to the hatred between the two groups because some of them 
snuck into the temple at night, middle of the night, during Passover, and threw dead men's bones all around the temple enclosure, there, which made it ceremonially unclean. And so there was a terrible hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans at this point in time. But Jesus didn't have a problem with the Samaritans. In fact, do you remember who was the first woman that he told that he was the Messiah? It was the Samaritan woman by the well, right? She had a whole handful of husbands and she was living with a guy that wasn't her husband. She's both a Samaritan and a vile sinner. And it was to her he reveals that he's the Messiah. When he taught a parable about how people ought to love and care for their neighbors, who did he choose as the good guy in that parable? The Samaritan. Uh, he was the good guy, the good Samaritan, we call him. So then if God loves Gentiles and Samaritans, why did Jesus tell the disciples not to go anywhere near them when he sent them out on their first term, their first short-term mission trip? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Let me tell you three reasons why I think he told them not to go there. First, the Jews held a very special place in God's plan. They were God's chosen people and the ones to whom had been given the law and the covenants and the promises. And so in the order of God's plan, it was that the kingdom was to first be offered to them. And so they, first of all, were approached by John the Baptist who came and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, it's imminent, it's here, it's available. And then Jesus came along and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And now Jesus says, you guys go and you say the very same thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You offer them the kingdom. You offer them the rule of God on earth. Heaven has come to earth. God wants to rule. Yes, it's a spiritual dimension. Yes, it's within your heart. Yes, it's the acceptance of the Lordship of Christ. But it also has an earthly aspect. And had they responded to the Messiah, both the internal kingdom and the external kingdom would have come together at that same moment. Jesus has told the Samaritan woman by the well, salvation is from the Jews. That didn't mean it was only for them. It means that it comes through them. They were to be the emissaries, the witnesses. Jerusalem was the launching point for evangelism. Jerusalem was to be the place where the nations came to see the Messiah. They were to be his witnesses. So Jesus says, go there first. It was to be much like Paul did on his missionary journeys. Even though he was a missionary to the Gentiles, whenever he entered a town, where's the first place he always went? Synagogue. 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 Did you have some? Yeah, it's, it's, it's what Jesus did when you look at Matthew um, 14 and 15. He fed the 4,000, and then later on he's going to feed the 5,000. But in between there was a, a Samaritan or not Samaritan, a Gentile woman that came to him and said, Lord, please heal my daughter. She's being possessed. And, and Jesus basically told her, I cannot take the food that belongs to the children and give it to the dogs, mm. to the Gentiles. He says, yes, but the dogs do eat the scraps off the table. And he said, your answer is good. Go, your faith has made your daughter well. So we see that he made a very clear primary responsibility to the house of Israel, mm -hmm. but he still does ministry yes. with the scraps. Yes, he did. <laughs> the scraps. So Jesus says, first go to the Jews. Listen, if the di disciples, think about this, if the disciples had first gone to the Gentiles and the Samaritans, 
the Jews would have never listened to them because they would have thought they were proclaiming some kind of pagan religion. So the special place of the Jews in God's eternal plan was the first reason. The second reason is that the 12 had a problem themselves. They were hardly up to the task of reaching their own people, much less trying to reach the Gentiles and the Samaritans, people whose cultures they didn't understand at all, whose biases and prejudices they would have had, to, they couldn't really overcome very easily. So they weren't equipped for that. <coughs> Realize that nothing ever really cracked open in the Gentile world, with the exception of Peter being sent to one God-fearing man named Cornelius, until a man came along by the name of Paul. Uh, and he, he was born of the tribe of Benjamin, zealous for the law, trained under Gamaliel, but he was educated and instructed in Gentile culture, and he lived in a Gentile area. He understood the culture. He was able to make the bridge to reach those Gentile people. But these guys weren't up for that. It wasn't time yet for them. They weren't ready. They didn't have the technique. They didn't have the background. They couldn't build the bridges. Third and less important than those first two reasons, I think the third reason they were sent only to the Jews was because these guys needed a special point of attack. You have to have specifics. The possibilities are various, but he gave them a specific target. Just do this. Go to Galilee. Go to the Jews who are the lost sheep of the house of Israel. By the way, that phrase, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, simply refers to the Jews. If you compare it back with chapter 9, verse 36, you'll see that we saw the crowd and they were like sheep without a shepherd. They're the lost sheep. They've been disconnected from the shepherd. They're out, in the fold. They're out of the fold. They're wandering around hopeless and helpless. So he says, go to them. Go to my people Israel. They're the ones to whom the promises were originally given. They're the ones with whom you can communicate and have an audience and a reception. So go to them. So he sent them to the same people he was trying to reach. Do you realize that and Frank just pointed it out here. The Lord never purposely went to the Gentiles. He had encounters with Gentiles, but they were few. And almost in every one of them, the Gentiles approached him rather than the other way around. The only exception was the Samaritan woman at the well in which he initiated the conversation by asking for a drink of water. Uh, but his ministry is almost exclusively to the Jews. In Matthew 15, 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was his focus. The Gentile world would come after that. Jesus had a tremendous focus, tremendous clarity as to his objective. I think one of the things that frustrates people in ministry is that they don't have a clear objective. If you don't have a clear objective, you can easily be diverted into areas that take away from your ability to do what you went there to do. I've seen it many times through the years here in this church. Someone will want to start a ministry and they have an idea that they want to do. And but as they get started, because they didn't clearly define what it was they wanted to accomplish, they begin to get diverted off into doing other things. And before you know it, they're overwhelmed by trying to do too much and discouragement follows and eventually that ministry shuts down. Uh, you know, one reason why Chick-fil-A has been so successful as a fast food company is that they focus on one thing, chicken sandwiches. Yeah, they have a few other things on the menu, but 
their primary focus is chicken sandwiches. Truett Cathy focused on the single objective to make the best chicken sandwich on the market. Oh, they eventually did throw in a few other things like nuggets, but chicken's the only meat they serve. You won't find regular fried chicken like KFC sells or a hamburger or a fish sandwich at Chick-fil-A. They maintain the overall focus on chicken sandwiches and consequently many people think they make chicken sandwiches better than anyone else. That's, we can debate that, but that's many people do think that. I think part of an effective ministry is to have a clear objective. Know your gifts. Understand what God has equipped you to do. Know the needs and callings and opportunities and desires of your heart and then find a track and run in that track. If you will do just one thing well, you'll be way ahead of most people. Just find the one thing God wants you to do and do it. I and the rest of the elders think about that a lot. Uh, it's so easy for any of us to get pulled off into all kinds of projects. I, I think there's hardly ever a meeting that goes by without at least a couple of us requesting prayer for our time management. Um, it's very easy to get diverted into doing things that are not the most important things. It seems like everyone who has an idea for a new ministry thinks that the elders must be present and in charge whenever it takes place. Um, and you, you want to be sensitive to people, but at times you feel like you're being pulled apart. Uh, you have to study for hours to teach on Sunday. You have personal and family obligations to deal with. Many of the elders still have their regular jobs to go to for 40 or more hours a week. Uh, you already have other ministries that you're involved in. You, already, uh, you spend time either in person or on the phone with counseling and discipleship, and now somebody comes along and says, can you help me with this new ministry? And, and to them, all they ever see you do is teach on Sunday, and some of them think that you got it from some sort of Baptist Sunday school quarterly that you skim through on Saturday night, and so surely you must have plenty of extra time on your hands. No, that's never the case. I know that I spend the equivalent of at least two full days every week just studying for Sunday school. You know, maybe 15, 16 hours. Uh, plus a full day, another eight, equivalent of another eight hours dealing with verse by verse issues. Um, in addition, I, I'm the guy that prepares those version notes that you see up on the screens. Uh, it mentions those that you find on your phone. Uh, and then I have the, the safety team to schedule and oversee and the salary review committee issues to deal with. And I'm the guy who takes the minutes in our elders meetings and I have to edit them and send them out to the other elders. Then there's always unexpected ministry phone calls and meetings and requests for advice and counsel and the like. If I have any time left, I have to study for the possibility of having to preach in the pulpit occasionally plus all the rest of normal life, such as you know, going to the doctor, taking my dad to the doctor, and the rest of the basics of life. At times you feel like you're being ripped to pieces. Uh, and it's no different for any of the other elders. Uh, so we have to go back to the basics, that central focus that God has called us to and focus on that. That's what the apostles said in Acts 6. 
They understood that it wasn't good for them to neglect the word in order to be involved with the food distribution to the widows in the church. And so they appointed the first deacons to do that. And the apostles said that they would devote themselves <clears throat> to prayer and the ministry of the word. I know what God has called me to do. He has gifted me in the areas of teaching and administration. And so that's where I focus my time. Uh, I'm, I'm not a good social activities director. Um, God didn't gift me with the kind of creative mind that's needed for those kinds of things. Uh, so I leave them to other people. I, I'm not even a great counselor. Uh, my counseling style can at times be rather direct and blunt. Uh, so many people don't care for it, especially someone who's self-righteous in their attitude. Uh, as an example, I remember one, I once had a man come to me for counsel, and he told me that his child with whom he was particularly close was moving out of the house, and he would be left at home with his wife with whom he didn't particularly get along. And he wanted to know what advice I had for him as to what he was supposed to do when the only other person in his house uh, was someone with whom he didn't, the only person who he had a good relationship was leaving, and uh, he'd be stuck in the house with his wife he didn't get along with. And I was stunned that he would even come to me and ask such a question. <laughs> and his attitude was clearly that he was the righteous one in the relationship, and his wife was unrighteous in terms of her attitude. So I did what Dr. Howard Hendricks, a well-known and beloved professor at my seminary, had once done in a similar situation. I looked him dead in the eye, and I said, Ephesians 5 says, tells husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church. Can you honestly tell me that you love your wife as sacrificially as Jesus loved the church? And he says, well, no, I can't say that I do. To which I replied, then get out of here and go home and start doing that. And uh, you need to stop being concerned about yourself and start being concerned about her needs and how you can meet them. And that's the only advice I have for you. Needless to say, he didn't come back to me for any more counsel. <laughs> now, let me add that I don't treat those who aren't self-righteous with that kind of bluntness. Uh, I reserve that approach for them, just like Jesus did with the Pharisees. Uh, so don't think that you can't come to me with advice and counsel on things. Uh, just don't expect me to be as skilled as some of our trained counselors. All I can tell you is what God's Word says and, my and what my general experiences have taught me. As that famous movie detective, Dirty Harry Callahan, once said, a man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> so that's why I'm not one of the counselors in our counseling church counseling ministry. But God has called me to teach his word and given me talents in terms of administration. So that's why I focus on those things. And I focus on expository teaching. I occasionally teach topically, but generally I prefer to look at the text, study the text, and explain the text. Um, I'm convinced that's the best way for you to learn what the Bible has to say. Uh, and so that's my focus of teaching. You say, but Bruce, if the elders don't take an active part in every ministry, how will the work get done? Well, the Lord will take care of that. He's got plenty of other folks. We don't have to do it all. If a ministry is of the Lord, it will flourish. Uh, there will be those who he raises up to serve in those areas of ministry, and, there will, and they will do a much better job than any of the elders could possibly do. Uh, yes, we're still here to oversee and determine the direction and focus of the ministry of this church, 
But so long as the various ministries that come under that are going in the same direction with the purpose of achieving the same goals, we are happy to let others serve in and lead those ministries. You know, sometimes in a church like ours where we have so many ministry activities going on, there's a tendency for some people to just stand in the middle looking around and say, what is there that I can do? There's just so much going on. Uh, and some of them wind up either doing nothing or trying to do too much. Uh, they do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and they become a smorgasbord Christian. Uh, let me just do a little bit of everything. Yes, Frank. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 that God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. And this is the purpose for elders and pastors. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Yeah. So the elders are not to do all the work, they are to equip the people to do all the work. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly right. Thank you. Well, you're the star for that one. <laughs> the idea, so folks, the idea is to focus on the central objective. Jesus said he did the works which the Father had given him to accomplish. And his, he said, the, his, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. It was a narrow focus, a narrow perspective, a narrow objective. But that's an effective ministry. Do one thing and do it well. So looking here at our text in Matthew 10.5, Jesus was giving a limited command to his apostles that was valid only for that time and place in his divine plan of world redemption. But the command illustrates a principle that is valid for every ministry in every time and place, namely that God gives his people clear, specific objectives for service and ministry. So develop and have precision in ministry. So the first element of an effective ministry is to have a divine commission. Second element is to have a central objective. And that brings us to the third component of effective ministry, which is a clear message. But you're going to have to wait until next week for that, because it's already almost 1015. And I don't have time to get in for five minutes to get into it and then stop. So a clear message. Okay. Any other comments? Any comments or questions before we go? As I said, don't, uh, don't think that if you want to ask me for advice or counsel, that I'm going to bite off your head. I only do that if you come to me with a self-righteous attitude. Well, I'm just doing real well here. This other person's not. Then we're going to deal with that from Scripture. Okay, any, uh, anything? Then Frank, please close us with prayer. Our gracious Father, we thank you for this privilege to come and study your word and to learn. And I pray, oh God, that what you have taught us today through your word, through our teacher, that your spirit would drive home to our hearts. And God, stir us and move us. Help us to become more like Christ in all that we do. And as we go into this next hour, Father, I pray again that you stir our hearts to worship you.